I love Palm Sunday. Anybody else? There, there's something about seeing those kids. It gets me every year. You know, seeing those kids come through with those palms as we're singing Hosanna. Traditions can be a bad thing, but traditions can be a great thing. And there's potential in some traditions, uh, especially ones that are linked to what's called the Christian calendar, which we'll talk about in a second here. There are some of these traditions that have the power to unite us through generations, the power to unite us across continents, across denominations. And I think Palm Sunday is certainly one of those. Well, I mentioned the Christian calendar. Um, One of the things that we try to do here at our church as we plan out our year is we keep one eye on what's called the Christian calendar calendar. And uh, I saw it recently represented in a way that I'd never seen before. A Christian calendar, we'll put up this picture here. I was at uh, Emma's school for a speech meet, which she just nailed, by the way. It was awesome. Um, This uh, proud dad, right? Can't get... And and, uh, anyway, so I saw this on one of their blackboards, and this was a way of visually representing, I know it's hard to see in the back there, a way of visually representing the Christian calendar, where we look at things that God has done through history, and then we try to sync up our calendars as Christians to try to celebrate some of them at the same time. So Advent is the season where we remember that God became became flesh, or yeah, God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and, and walked among us. And so where it says Advent and Epiphany up there, this teacher wrote, God with us. God with us, which I think is a great way to summarize that season. And then we're in the season right now of Lent and Easter. And and that season, she wrote, God for us. God for us, which I think is a great way to summarize the season that we're in right now. Now, we're going to come back to those other two seasons. We'll circle back to them, no pun intended, at the end of this message. But I want to camp here for a moment on this God for us piece. And there's a place, if you could, to write down in your notes um, this question. If God is for us, if God is for us, which he is, why would he expect a sacrifice? Why would he expect a sacrifice? Now, in this season that we're in right now, God for us, season, Lent, and Easter, we've been working our way as a church through the book of Hebrews. And if Lent was a race, we are now to the final stretch. So we are going to be getting to the last two chapters of Hebrew today, Hebrews today, chapters 12 and 13. And one of the things we're going to see in a few minutes here is that in chapter 13, it says to offer a pleasing sacrifice. And once again, why would we bring a sacrifice if God is for us? Well, let's work our way there. For those who aren't familiar with the book of Hebrews, it was a real first century letter that was written to real people in a real context. And the real context that it was written to was every bit as broken as the world that we're in today. How many of you saw some of those images on TV of that uh, chemical weapons attack on those civilians? Men and women and children. Well, not too far from Syria, in fact, just down to the south and to the east 2,000 years ago, Christians were being targeted then too. Christians were being targeted. And things for those people were about to get much, much worse. So the author of Hebrews, when he wrote this letter, he was writing to say, You guys, hang in there. He was writing to try to help them have a faith that would endure. He wanted to equip his readers with a faith that could remain strong no matter what came their way. Because the no matter what was going to be really, really bad. And he wanted to equip them so that they could endure whatever it was that came their way. And he made his case like a lawyer. One of the things that I didn't notice before this week was how, at least in the translation that I'm using, the ESV, there are 21 therefores in 13 chapters. Because he's trying to make a case. Therefore, 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 therefore. And we're going to get the the passage that we're going to look at today starts with a therefore in chapter 12. 
So uh, let's get a running start here before we dive into today's uh, new content. And there's a place to write this in your notes. Here's where we've been for the last several weeks. The author of Hebrews devoted the first 10 chapters of his letter to making a case that Jesus Christ is worthy of our faith in all circumstances. Amen. He's above the angels. We looked at that in week two. He's greater than Moses. That was week three. Perfect priest. That was week four. And after 10 chapters of making this case for Christ, the author then turns our attention to the faithful men and women who tried their best to live this out. And that's what we did last week. We looked at chapter 11. There's a place to write this in your notes. In chapter 11, the author provides specific examples of flawed heroes of the faith. That was one of the things we emphasized last week. There is not a person who's ever tried to follow after God who got it all right. You know, we're all fallen in this world. None of them were perfect. Well, everything that the author has been doing, everything that we've been looking at for the last five weeks, everything that he's been doing up to this point has been building towards the passage that we're going to look at today. And in chapter 12, we're going to discover why Good Friday is aptly named. Five days from now, we're going to be gathering as many of us as can. We're going to gather here at 5 o'clock, at 7 o'clock for a Good Friday service. And we're going to be pressing into the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. When you consider how horrific that was, why would we call it good? That's chapter 12. And then chapter 13, we're going to discover the implications for those who desire to offer God a pleasing sacrifice in return. God, if you did that for us, what does a pleasing sacrifice look like that we could offer you? So we're going to try to do all that in the time we've got. So we're going to have to go fast. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And as we're turning there, I want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible um, at home, we'd love to give you one free today. Even if uh, you're just here as part of the fan club, if if it's a one-off, we don't care. Take a Bible home if you don't have one. We'd love to make sure that everyone's got a Bible in in their home. All right, here we go. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And this is where we started Lent. How many of you here for Ash Wednesday? This is where we started this whole Lenten journey with this passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all right, and I want to hit pause there. We're going to get to the rest of these, these opening verses, but I want to pause it for a second. And I also put the Greek word for witnesses, at least the English transliteration of it, up on the screens. And we'll talk about why that was here in just a second. What I want to point out right now is that that Greek word is not pronounced Marty's. I got Marty on the brain um, because we had a little puppy at our house for the last six weeks named Marty. We've been puppy sitting, you know, and Marty, I think Marty's going to think his name is Marty No, because for the last six weeks we've been Marty No, Marty No, Marty No, Marty No. But I'm pretty sure no one knows exactly how ancient Greek was pronounced. If they tell you otherwise, they're not telling you the truth. But it's much closer to Martus than Marty. That's the word we're looking at. But one of the things you might notice, you see that, English transliteration of, of this word translates witnesses. Does that look like the word martyr to anybody else? If it does, that's, it should, because that's where the English word martyr comes from. If you look to the origins of the English word martyr and you go through Latin, you land in Greek, and that's where our word martyr comes from, from these witnesses, these men and women who gave it all as they were witnessing for their faith. Now, there's method to the madness here. One of the reasons, again, why I put that, that Greek word up there is I want to show you something that we would miss if we were just reading in English. There's wordplay that goes on in so many portions of Scripture, and that's the case here. This word that's translated as witnesses, um, this word, there's a, a very similar-looking word that connects chapters 11 and 12. Let me just show you this really, really quick. This is how Hebrews 11 ends and how 12 begins. 
And all these, though commended, is that word, look at all like the word that we were just looking at? Those commended, all these men and women who were witnessing for the faith, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Here's how one of my sources described this wordplay. This is from a source called the New International Commentary in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews has chosen this term, witnesses, because it enables him to affirm that the heroes of old are both witnesses to and of God's contemporary people. Here's what all that means. It means that there was a both and going on here. That these people were witnesses to. They were witnesses to the reality of God. They were witnesses to a life well lived. They were witnesses to something that happened. And the wordplay also then creates this image or this expectation that those people who are witnessing to are now witnessing of, witnessing for, witnessing. It's as if they're cheering us on today. It's as if they're cheering us on today. And we see that. Now let's look at the full verse here. Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's why we open with that passage on Ash Wednesday. Because Ash Wednesday is a time as we start this series, this, this, this season of Lent. It's a time when you're supposed to reflect and say, what are your Marty Noahs? What are the things that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing? What are the things that you should repent from as you now turn to and seek God? And so this passage, the reason we picked it for Ash Wednesday is because it speaks to that. And one of the things it says is that you're supposed to, to cast off every weight, anything that would hold you back. The imagery is of a race here, a long distance race. And I brought these weights from home. And can you, I mean, these weigh as much as most marathoners, right? I mean, can you, can you imagine trying to run a distance race, not just finish, but to race? Nobody would carry these things, right? If you're trying to run a race. And it says, if you want to run this race, then cast those things off. Let go of anything that would hold you back so you can run this thing. It also says to not be entangled with sin. And so I brought this leash that I used for Marty a lot. And I spent the last six weeks in my front yard very, every morning getting tangled up by this dog that could not run in a straight line. You know, and he'd run all around and tangle you up. If someone's trying to run a race, the last thing you want is to be tangled up, right? You want to be able to run. And so the author of Hebrews says, cast off every weight. Let go of every sin that can entangle you and run this race. That's the no. Let go of all that stuff. Say no to that stuff. But the Bible doesn't stop with the no. And so we're not going to stop there either. Today we're going to talk about the yes. Because that's where Hebrews points us. So let's move on to verse 2 where we start to see this yes. We are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews says, if you want a faith that will endure, yes, do the no stuff. Say no to those things that are holding you back. Cast off those weights. Let go of that sin. Yes, and fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. 
Now, it's interesting that these words founder and perfecter are used here. I had missed this on my first, like, 20 readings of, of Hebrews. The, this is a theme that was introduced really early on. If you have your Bibles open, keep them open to 12, 2. And now let's look back. I'll put this on the screen. Look at what was introduced way back in, in Hebrews 2.10. You see any words that look familiar there? says this, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So this theme is woven together throughout the whole letter. And now it's brought to the forefront. Let's fix our eyes on him. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, if we go back to Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, here's something else I, I noticed. There's some parallelism going on here. Never noticed this before either. In 12, 1, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then there's this kind of echo going on here in verse 2, where it says, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There's wordplay there too, isn't there? As we run the race set before us, we're reminded to fix our eyes on the joy that was set before him. One of the sources I looked at this week put it this way. The author of Hebrews urges his hearers to respond, to respond by running the race with endurance while keeping their eyes on Jesus who endured. Well, the author of Hebrews, he reinforces all of this in the very next verse. 12.3 says this, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I asked the guys running the slides to keep this up on the screen because we're going to dig into this a little bit here. And it is not an exaggeration to say we could spend a month on this verse and not get to the bottom of this well. We only have time to scratch the surface. I'll do the best I can. I only have time to highlight a couple things here. And I want to begin with those words, grow weary and faint-hearted. Because one of the things that I found out as I was researching this week is that those terms here translated in English, in Greek, the original Greek, those were actual terms that you would use if you were talking about a distance runner and what was happening to them when they were running. That they would grow weary, they would be faint-hearted. And I find that interesting as a former runner, that, that it is the pain and fatigue where dealing with that is often where a race is won or lost. Because almost every runner is going to come, and they're, gonna, they're not going to be carrying weights. They're going to come to that starting line, casting off all the weights. They're going to come to that starting line. They make sure their, sure their shoes aren't tied together. They're going to come ready to run. But often where the race is won and lost is what do you do when you get that pain? Because if you're a racer and you're a distance racer, you know what I'm talking about. It hurts. And everything within you is screaming, stop, 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 at least physically. And in your mind, you start to get this little voice that says, start making up excuses of why you had to slow down. And you have to fight that. And that's often where the race is won or lost, is in the mind and in the heart. Are you going to push through the pain? And there's all kinds of directions we could go with this in terms of personal application. But one of them is the importance of choosing your teammates well. Because if you're running in anything that's going to cause you to have to run with endurance, you want to have teammates with you that are helpful, not hurtful. Because you're going to have internal stuff saying, slow down, stop, opt out. What's going to keep you going? Well, often it's those teammates that are cheering you on. 
And I think about how one of the things my coach used to train me with, with, with running, he said, when you're going to pass somebody in a race, you pass them hard and aggressive. Why? Especially in the later stages. He said, you do that because you want to steal their heart because you, they're hurting. You're hurting and they're hurting. And what you want to do is you want to come by them in such a way where they think you're not hurting. So you get on the hill, you charge that hill because you might just break them. You pretend like, ah, I'm feeling great. You know, you're dying, right? You're going to go into that, that curve. You pass them aggressive. You pass them hard because then they think, I'm not going to catch them anyway. That's the last thing you want from a teammate, isn't it? And I think about all of the temptations we have often as Christians, and I have no idea. Well, no, I do have an idea. It comes from the pit of hell. That's where it comes from. I was going to say I have no idea where they come from. This whole thing that we feel like we have to put up an image. That is one of the most unhelpful things we can possibly do. Because we look to the side, right and to the left, and we see all, all these other people. Oh, look at their family is all together. It's perfect. Raise your hand if you don't have a perfect family. All right. <laughs> look at that. You're not the only one, right? Or you look at them and go, oh my goodness, it looks like they have it so together. They're not tempted the way I'm tempted. They're straight and narrow. They get up every morning and go, I can't wait for devotions today. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to meet God. It's going to... You know, nobody is like that all the time. Why in the world would we put up that image? It's discouraging, isn't it? When people put up an image that just isn't true. Instead of, you know what? This is hard. This is work. But there's also joys in this pain. Come on, brother. Come on, sister. Let's go. We can do this with the help of God. So that's one of the things you want. You want to have teammates that are being honest and real. You also want to have teammates that are actually encouraging you. And Hebrews specifically gets to this. Again, we don't have time to pull up all these verses. But in Hebrews um, 12, starting in verse 15, it says specifically, you do not want to surround yourself. He's talking to Christians and the Christian community. Look out for the root of bitterness. There are so many people that as they're following God, they get bitter. And, and you don't, it's hard enough to keep going strong without people who just keep reminding you of how hard it is without having anything that, that, to cheer you on. Or they're pointing fingers at you of like, man, look, you fell this way and fell this way and fell this way. It also reminds us in that same passage, it warns us about if you're a professing Christian, you know, to, to be careful about surrounding yourself with other people who are professing Christians who if God says go this way, they're going this way. Because as a, you know, as a runner, maybe you recognize that it's a whole lot harder to get out of bed and do your workout if your teammates are sleeping in, right? So that's another direction that we could explore if we have time. And here's one more. If we had more time, we could go down this important path. And someday we will, possibly at Good Friday. If we have time, we're going to go down this path. Hebrews 12.3 instructs us to consider him who endured. You see how that's how this starts? Consider him who endured. And I think that's fascinating because often we're tempted to focus on what he endured instead of who endured. And it's important to focus on the what. That's naturally where we go because the what was horrific. Crucifixion was horrific. We should consider that. But a lot of times we can lock so much into the what that we forget the who. And that who really matters. Because the who was greater than Moses. The who was above the angels. The who was the perfect priest. The who was the founder and perfecter of our faith. And when we focus on the who, that can change everything. can change everything. So there's another direction we could go with this passage. But with the time we have left, here's the main point I want to make. If you don't take home anything else that I've said, Here's what I encourage you to go home with. We can endure the race that is set before us 
if we remember the joy that was set before him. We can endure the race that is set before us if we remember the joy that was set before him. This is so important. Remember that crosses are something that we endure. That's not the joy. The cross is not the joy. The cross is something that we endure. The cross is not the end. The cross is, is a means. It's, it's something that we go through. It's we endure. And in Jesus' case, the joy that was set before him was our salvation. That was what he locked into. He endured the cross. For the joy set before him and the joy set before him was our salvation. That's why we can call Good Friday Good Friday. Think about this. If the cross was all about how much pain Jesus could endure, that's not good news. The good news is that he endured it for us and for our salvation. And he did what none of us could do on our own. I put in parentheses a couple words, um, salvation words, theological words after that, that phrase, atonement and sanctification. Jesus accomplished both of these in, on the cross. Salvation is a diamond with many facets. And two of them are in parentheses there. This atonement, what that means is one of the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross was to atone for our sins. And that's something that Hebrews does almost from start to finish. He keeps making this case that what Jesus did was once for all. What he did was completed. What he did was perfect. He accomplished that. And sanctification is something else that he was doing. Because the more we look at what the sanctification isn't a once and for all word. Sanctification is the ongoing. The making us more and more and more like Christ. And that's another thing that he did through the cross. As we look to his example and as we follow in his footsteps. I found a great summary of this relationship between atonement and sanctification in a book that I'm reading. Called The Ragamuffin Gospel. It says this. While Jesus calls each of us to a more perfect life, we cannot achieve it on our own. Isn't that good? All right. Well, I was working on this message. And as I was working on it, I was thinking about the yes that we're called to, how we're to fix our eyes on the joy before us. I had this very vivid picture of a bunch of guys named Marty. And they were all in a circle. And they were wearing monk robes, brown monk robes. And they were carrying these big crosses, but they were walking in a circle. And they were just, they, they thought they were being obedient. They thought they were honoring God by their misery. And they were just walking in circles instead of fixing their eyes on the joy before them and going somewhere, doing something besides being miserable and thinking that that's how we honor God. The martyrs, what kept them going? The martyrs. I don't know for all of them, but I've read enough accounts of the martyrs, they had something they focused on. Something that they would endure for. Whether it was, perhaps I can win over the hearts of one of my captors. They're going to see something in me that's real. Hebrews tells us to focus on the joy beyond us. It, it, it talks about perfect rest. Perfect rest. How many of you would love perfect rest? That's one of the things that Hebrews says we can fix our eyes on. Perfect rest is waiting for us. For those who endure. It also talks about rewards. And a lot of times we're like, we can't talk about rewards because that means like we have selfish motivation. The Bible says we can focus on rewards. This is in Hebrews chapter 11, 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. All right, so we're talking about pleasing God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he what? Rewards those who seek him. 
Is it a God-pleasing thing to fix our eyes on the rewards that are waiting? Yes. He's a good father. He loves to reward his children. God's people endure crosses for the joy set before us. And that, as I was thinking on those things, I was thinking about the actual metaphors that Hebrews gives us. And as we bring, start to bring this teaching to a close here, consider the metaphor of a race that we've been given. This is it, that we're in this race. Can you imagine, can you imagine if a runner came up to his coach, a distance runner? Runner comes up to the coach and says, Coach, I love you. And I love our team. And to show you how much I love you and love our team, I'm going to walk barefoot across these burning coals. I imagine the coach going, um, or <laughs> you could not walk across the coals and burn your feet and get in the race. Right? Or imagine, again, you've got this runner comes up and says, Coach! I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to show you how much I love our team. I'm going to throw away all my running shoes, throw away all my running gear. Coach says, or you could put your shoes on, get your jersey on, and get in the race. Competitive runners endure hill repeats. They endure shin splints. They endure 10-mile runs in negative 10-degree weather. In the 80s, we endured really short shorts. Really short shorts. Runners endure all kinds of things. Why? For the joy. For the joy of helping our team. For the joy of winning a race. For the joy of reaching a goal. For the joy of developing a discipline that can help in other areas of life. Speaking of which, the author transitions there with discipline. The author transitions from the race metaphor to a father analogy, and he does so with discipline. Imagine a child that comes to her father and says, Daddy, I love you so much. I'm going to fast for you. The dad might say, help me understand this. Because if fasting is the end, I don't understand how that shows devotion or love for the father, if that's the end. But... What if there's a joy set before you? Fasting can, can lead to a whole new appreciation for how blessed we are. If you've ever fasted, you start to realize, wow, I can have food anytime, almost anytime I want. Most of the world can't. Wow. Fasting can be something that leads you to a new, renewed emphasis on prayer. Because every time you feel hungry, you pray. Fasting can break the power of gluttony and instant gratification. Fasting can help you learn discipline over other appetites. There's all kinds of great things that fasting can do if fasting is not the end, but it's something you endure for the joy. One of the quickest ways to grow weary, one of the quickest ways to go faint-hearted is to forget that our Heavenly Father wants us to experience real and lasting joy. Good fathers care about discipline precisely because they love their kids and they want them to experience real and lasting joy in the future. After framing the father analogy, the author of Hebrews says this about God. This is from Hebrews 12.10. God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, 
All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Who here would love to have more peace that comes with living rightly? That's the joy set before us in discipline. Throughout the series, we've been recommending a resource by N.T. Wright called Hebrews for Everyone. Here's a quote out of that that speaks to this verse. It may come as a shock to many Christians to discover that what lies ahead of them is a life in which God, precisely because he's treating us as sons and daughters, will refuse to spoil us or ignore us, will refuse to let us get away forever with rebellion or folly, with sin or stupidity. And I love this last sentence. All I can say is I'd rather be in the hands of a father than a distant, faceless, careless bureaucrat. Can I get an amen? All right, we're almost out of time. And I promised that we'd return to that photo that talked about the Christian calendar. So if we could get it up on the screens. In Advent, we focus on God with us. In Lent, we focus on God for us. And now here comes this section of the race, y'all. This section of the race now is we experience God in us. That's what Pentecost is about. God is in us through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then God through us. Through us. That's the context for the pleasing sacrifice. There's a place to write this in your notes and write quick because we're going to talk about what this means. What pleasing sacrifice will you offer on Good Friday? There's a place to write that in your note, that question, your notes. What pleasing sacrifice will you offer on Good Friday? Here's the context for for that question. This is out of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. What is a pleasing sacrifice? According to this passage, do not neglect to do what? Good. Do you want to offer a pleasing sacrifice? Don't neglect to do good. Share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Don't be like the Martys in the circle carrying their cross going nowhere. That's not a pleasing sacrifice. That's dysfunctional. Consider what you could offer God that is good. That's pleasing to Him. And many of you, you already know what that is. Many of you already know something that, because God's been working on you. And you may not recognize it as God. You may recognize it as your conscience. God works through your conscience. Some of you may know, I, I should be doing this. This would result in good for myself, for my family, for our world. If you've already got yours, great. If you don't, Hebrews 13 has some helpful suggestions. And it's amazing to me how every one of these practical suggestions in Hebrews 13 even though it's 2,000 years later, even though we're half a world away, even though this is a very different culture than our own, every one of these still apply to us. Here are some examples of pleasing sacrifices from Hebrews 13. In, chap- in verse 2, showing hospitality to strangers. In verse 3, remembering those in prison and those who are mistreated. In verse 4, save sex for marriage. In verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. And this next one happens to have three different references. I'm just saying. Just saying. Remember, honor, and pray for godly leaders. And verse 15 says this, Honor God with your lips. 
Well, at this time, I want to invite the worship band forward, and they're going to help us with a song that's going to seal this. But as they do, I want you to, to think about what your pleasing sacrifice is this Holy Week. And I would encourage you to come back on Friday and offer it up. And if you're not here with us, if you're at some other service somewhere else, do this. Offer up your pleasing sacrifice. Bring something. Because you don't, it's, it's important to go to a good Friday service and focus on what Jesus did. But let's not let that sacrifice be in vain. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's also then follow his example and offer our pleasing exa- sacrifices. So, one of the things you might want to consider doing if you want to offer hospitality Fill out a connection card right now and bring it on Friday to say, Becca, I want to help people. I want to help welcome people here. You saw how many kids we've got running around this place? Help us welcome them. We have about 500 people who are coming here on a Sunday. So many new faces all the time. Will you help us welcome them? And there's all kinds of ways at home you can be doing this too, right? Welcoming. So that could be one idea. When it comes to the idea of working with the poor, with the marginalized, we have a growing list of all of these different organizations and people where you can make a real difference in Jesus' name. And if you don't have an idea, come and have an email ready to go. Bring your smartphone. And again, with Becca, have her name on there ready to go to hit send to say, Becca, how can I help the poor, the marginalized? And come on Friday, hit send. When it comes to the the relationships one, Some of you need to have a letter composed on your smartphone that says, Dear Frank, it's over. My pastor said so. (laughs) Blame me if you must. But if there's somebody in your life that's pulling you away relationally from where God would steer us, for the joy set before you, end that now. There's all kinds of things you could do. When it comes to money, you could bring a check. When it comes to the leaders, could you, could you maybe come with a note that you could send to our volunteers who are helping with these kids, our volunteers who help set this up, these people who rehearse each and every week, lead us in worship. Could you encourage them? Could you pray for them? That would be a great one. And then the, the last one, honoring God with your lips. It literally says in Hebrews thirteen fifteen, it says, bring a sacrifice of praise. Some of you, I'm not, making, I'm not just saying this, some of you should literally bring your computers and during the Good Friday service, delete songs, delete videos, things that are not honoring God. And again, we're not doing it to say no, we're doing it to say yes. To say yes to something greater. Can you imagine the witness that we could have if all 500 of us brought a pleasing sacrifice this Friday? Wouldn't that give the cloud of witnesses something to cheer about? Way to go. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the witnesses who've gone before us and the sacrifices that they've made that encourage us as real as they were, as fallen as they were, as broken as they were, just like we are. How inspirational to look at their example. But most of all, Holy Spirit, we pray that you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the founder. He is the perfecter of our faith. May we focus on him who endured these things, that we may offer up a pleasing sacrifice of our own, one that changes our life for the better and changes our world for the better as well. This we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.